I'm Celeste Cranston. I'm the director of that very Center for Biblical and Theological Education, which I plan to tell you a lot more about at a different point, probably lunch tomorrow, so please plan to join us for that. But we've been praying for this time together for months, really, and um, I'm delighted to be able to join together now, and I invite you to join with me in a prayer as we begin. Will you bow your heads? Gracious God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We pray, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. And now let me introduce you to our Vice President for Academic Affairs, Dr. Les Steele, who will bring greetings on behalf of the university. You could have clapped. I heard somebody try. That's, <laughs> never mind. Not a, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, I do bring greetings on behalf of the university to you. Welcome to Seattle Pacific University. It is an honor and a pr- privilege to have you all here. I do hope that uh, this time is formational for you in your own faith, in your own understanding, in your own knowledge. It is a uh, the very idea of a center for biblical and theological education is important at SPU. The words of that title are carefully selected to convey what is really at the heart of what we do. And for years and years and years, uh, we have attempted to be serious about the study of Scripture as the text for the Christian church and also as the formational text for Christians and also for a way of coming to know uh, who we are in the midst of this world. Uh, And I must say, uh, with that, that, um, well, let me say something else, too, first. Last night, I was leaving campus, and I noticed a beautiful couple, a little bit older than most typical students on campus, and I said, excuse me, didn't you write the Bible? And sure enough, here was Eugene Peterson and his wonderful wife walking across campus. They're here. They've returned to us, so you have a rich time ahead with him, but before that, uh, what I want to connect with for you is that rich history of this institution of really finding the Bible at the center of all the work we do intellectually, whether it be in theology and scripture or not, has been an attempt to work around the text. I'm not introducing the speaker today, but I would be remiss uh, to forget to tell you that he has been at the center of that desire and that drive to keep the biblical text at the very center of all we do, to understand it in its deeply formative way. And I have never experienced the teaching of a biblical scholar and preacher that takes me into the text as deeply and formatively as you will hear from Dr. Spina. So with that, I just welcome you to Seattle Pacific University again. May this be a rich, rewarding, intellectually stimulating, and spiritually formative time for you. Welcome. As we begin, I invite you to read aloud with me the word of the Lord. Will you find a pew Bible? We do have them. And I invite you to find that pew Bible and turn with me to Psalm 19, found on page 413 in your pew Bible. Perhaps you even need to share that with someone next to you. What a wonderful idea. 
share the text, would you? And we are going to read together Psalm 19 in unison. Join me, if you will. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to introduce to you today our speaker, Dr. Frank Anthony Spina, who's professor of Old Testament and biblical theology here at Seattle Pacific University, where he has been since 1973. He is not just the senior professor of our School of Theology, but I understand he's as well senior professor for our university. He's an ordained priest in the Episcopal Church, a distinguished writer, and a current voice within the Church on a theological reading of Scripture. His most recent book is entitled The Faith of the Outsider, Exclusion and Inclusion in the Biblical Story. But I think perhaps his most recent writing, certainly most important writing as far as I'm concerned, is the set of 13 Lectios that he wrote for us on Genesis and Exodus, the first installment of the Center for Biblical and Theological Education's four-year online free guided Bible reading program, again, about which I think you'll hear more. But Frank is an avid fan of baseball, undeniably one of the best-dressed professors on this campus, (laughs) a devoted husband, and a gentleman, and a scholar. So to open this conference on Scripture's formation, Frank is speaking today on A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, Exposing the Bible to Rediscover Christian Scripture. Please join me 
in welcoming Dr. Frank Anthony Spina. From time to time, I will reach for very hot water under the podium. If I were a Calvinist, I would say from time to time, having fallen off a ladder, thank God that's over with. (laughs) Not as a Calvinist, but the Lord saw fit in his infinite wisdom to test me with a cold this week. In a 2006 book, Dr. Eugene Peterson admonishes Christians to, quote, eat this book, unquote. The book, of course, is the Bible. How does one quarrel with that? His chosen metaphor suggests devouring the biblical material, savoring it, uttering satisfying sounds as the luscious content rolls over the proverbial tongue and utterly relishing the Bible's spiritually nutritious fare. To paraphrase from the Wonder Bread ad from yesteryear, I don't even know if they still make that stuff, (laughs) eating the Bible builds us up spiritually at least 12 ways. What's not to like? We are spiritually hungry, And the Bible is the whole food chain and a raft of supplemental vitamins all rolled into one. All we need to do is sit at the table and dive into the feast. In this instance, gluttony is a virtue rather than a vice. Given this compelling metaphor and the captivating images it evokes, it may appear unseemly if not churlish, to spoil the broth, keeping with the gustatory image. Nevertheless, I'm going to risk it. Here's my question. What is it about the Bible that we have to be urged to make it an essential part of our spiritual diet? If the Bible is indispensable for our formation as Christians, What makes a book like Dr. Peterson's necessary? Granted, he wants us to go beyond sipping, nibbling, sampling, and poking at or playing with our biblical food and drink. He wants us to go for solid food, meat, rather than milk, which works for infants, but certainly not adults. I get that. But why is that not obvious? Is the problem that today's Christians are the equivalent of fast food junkies who refuse to cultivate the refined taste required for the Bible's sumptuous feast? Perhaps. Yet, I think even that explanation goes only so far. In spite of how tasty fast foods and desserts are, those who have developed palates know that truly nutritious food need not sacrifice taste. Thus, once again, I pose my question. If the food available in the Bible is not only nutritious, but delicious as well, why do we have to be coaxed 
to eat this book. No mother ever has to say, eat your pizza. <laughs> no father ever sternly demands, unless you eat your ice cream, you're not going to get any spinach. None of us have to be cajoled to eat what tastes good. So why do we have to be so? Do we have to be urged to eat the Bible because it does not taste very good, even though it is good for us? Are all summonses to eat from the biblical pantry the parental equivalent of eat your vegetables? If that's the case, there's no end to the books that will have to be written. To press my point, why are we not drawn to the Bible the way we would jump at the chance for a free gourmet meal at Canlis, Daniel's Broiler, or El Gaucho? All three places where one of my colleagues wants to take me, have me him buy him lunch now that I have lost a football bet. <laughs> I'll be passing the hat soon. <laughs> well, Christians are spiritually labeled, uh, spiritually lazy. There is something to that. Christians have little appetite for the Bible while they are spiritually immature. Fair enough. Christians are distracted by the cares and concerns of the world, no doubt. Still, while explanations like these help us to understand the dilemma to a degree, I do not think they get at the heart of the issue. I have just this fall begun my 39th year of teaching biblical studies at Seattle Pacific University. In that time span, I have taught hundreds of students coming from backgrounds which have fostered considerable reverence for the Bible. Most of these students come into my classes believing that the Bible is absolutely true, inspired, authoritative, infallible, inerrant, and all but dictated by God. Some could easily be convinced that the original autographs glowed in the dark. <laughs> you would have a hard time coming up with a positive adjective modifying the word Bible which my students would not eagerly embrace. Nevertheless, in all these years of teaching such squeaky clean, salt of the earth, wonderfully enthusiastic, impressively committed, exuberant Christian young people, there is one thing I have told every beginning class throughout my four decades here. It is this. Your ignorance of the Bible is impossible to exaggerate. <laughs> of course, I say this with a great deal of charm and affection. <laughs> to be sure, these students know their favorite verses. Many of them are familiar with the standard stories, Noah and the ark, Moses and the burning bush, David and Goliath, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and the like. They have some conception of what they regard as the plan of salvation. A good percentage of them even read the Bible regularly, bless their hearts. Nevertheless, almost without exception, 
Their understanding of the Bible would have to be characterized as superficial, piecemeal, truncated, highly selective, and often close to incoherent. Making matters worse, these same wonderful students, and they are wonderful, are very often traumatized in Bible classes by the biblical text itself. Let me repeat that. The biblical text throws them for a loop. Their difficulty is not professors cleverly and diabolically luring them into a wilderness of doubt, cynicism, or unbelief. Actually, it's quite easy to cut professors down to size by dismissing their assertions as radical, liberal, irreligious, impious, unchristian, Bible-denying rants. (laughs) Professors can be dealt with. They're all flawed human beings, and some of us are more flawed than others. The biblical text is another matter altogether. Thank you. Students are scandalized when they get exposed to the biblical text in detail. In this, they are no different from many other Christians. Ignorance of the Bible has become so widespread and persistent that exposure to the text has actually become a major source of spiritual consternation. It is no wonder that people like Eugene Peterson have to write volumes like Eat This Book. What in the world has happened to create this unfortunate, even desperate situation? How is it that Christians are in danger of starving to death while locked inside a biblical Whole Foods market? To answer that question, or try to answer it, I'm going to switch from Dr. Peterson's marvelous metaphor to the one I've used as the title of this lecture, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, Exposing the Bible to Rediscover Christian Scripture. Clearly, an explanation is in order. Calling the Bible a wolf in sheep's clothing is not only derogatory, but potentially scatological, if not blasphemous. How dare I? In making this audacious claim, I actually have no truck with the Bible per se. After all, I have spent my whole academic and ministerial career trying to convince Christians that the Bible is an indispensable resource for their life in Christ and in Christ's church. Given that, how is it that I am implying that the Bible is masking a lupine identity with deceptive ovine garments. I confess, in actual fact, the Bible has not done this. As it turns out, the Bible cannot dress itself at all. Any clothes worn by the Bible are the result of those who have taken it upon themselves to outfit the good book with the clothing they prefer. In this instance, I am using this metaphor to argue that we have dressed the biblical material in a manner that allows us to read in a variety of ways that appear helpful, wholesome, and suitable, but in actual fact are not theologically robust, not biblically informed, 
do not take into account the Bible as a whole, are often hardly Christian, ignore or are antagonistic to the church, and sometimes even trivialize biblical content. In short, I am saying that we have become adept at reading the Bible from a variety of questionable perspectives, while we have largely lost the ability to read the Bible as Scripture, more precisely as Christian Scripture. In my chosen metaphor, the wolf represents authenticity. This is not the big bad wolf. This is what my granddaughter likes to call, pap-pap, this is the good wolf. She has a very soft heart place in her heart for wolves. Sheep's clothing represents that which appears benign, innocent, and helpful, but is ultimately problematic, if not deceptive. It involves reading the Bible not as Christian scripture, but as something else entirely. Now this must seem like the oddest of claims. How else might we read the Bible than as Christian scripture? As counterintuitive as it seems, there are any number of ways of reading the Bible that have nothing to do with its makeup as Christian scripture. We read it as a historical account in which we have varying degrees of interest depending on our own predilections. A bit more interest in Jesus' history, much less for Israel's. We read it as a glorified self-help book in which there is virtually no limit, no limit to the topics the Bible supposedly covers, including your Wall Street investments. We read the Bible to find key verses or texts which allegedly substantiate a previously adopted position, whether in the realm of theology, ethics, economics, relationships, the end times, or whatever. Aren't we coming to one of those end times again this month? Or did it pass again? I ask that because I always threaten to go on a credit card spree. As the media informs us on a regular basis, folk are capable of justifying the most bizarre forms of behavior or outlooks by citing biblical material. Whether in the realm of child-rearing, responses to other faith traditions, or tax policy, the list is virtually endless. These and other similar efforts in my mind constitute the non-scriptural sheep's clothing which is disguising the authentic scriptural wolf. However, it does little good to lament the myriad misuses of the Bible. Having found a magnificent scriptural wolf, wolf, after disrobing it of these inappropriate woolens, it would be more profitable to speak to the issue of rediscovering Christian scripture. Now, I want to be careful here. By no means do I want to convey the impression that no one until relatively recently has been reading the Bible as scripture. 
that would be as arrogant as it would be wrong. There are many excellent examples of judicious, spirit-led, and theologically compelling renderings of biblical material as Scripture, not only throughout the Church's history, but in our times as well. Indeed, relatively recently, there has been a most salutary development in which a growing number of scholars have placed the theological interpretation of Scripture on center stage. At the same time, this development illustrates the morass we find ourselves in when it comes to how we treat the Bible. Somehow, we are to take heart that the Bible says something about God. It's like a new discovery. Should we be elated that the Boeing company manufactures airplanes? That Kellogg's is into cereal? Or that sleep country peddles mattresses? That's what they do. This is not new. The unpalatable fact of the matter is that reading the Bible as scripture has become tragically elusive for a variety of reasons. Those reasons may become clearer to us as I rehearse what I believe has to be in place for a substantial appropriation of the Bible as Scripture. The place to begin is focusing on why we have a Bible in the first place. The answer to the question, where did the Bible come from, goes far beyond and solving a fascinating historical conundrum or responding with the facile assertion that God inspired the biblical authors. I argue that the origins of the Bible and its subsequent use as scripture are vitally related. There is only one reason why we have a Bible. Two communities of faith played a decisive and indispensable role the synagogue and the church, respectively. I use the term synagogue here as a shorthand for nascent Judaism, which began to take shape in the late 6th century before the Common Era during the Persian period and then developed over the next several centuries. Likewise, the church refers to those followers of and believers in Jesus the Christ the risen and exalted Lord. These followers were first located in the synagogue and then later became a distinct but related religious community. When considering Judaism, we need to keep in mind that the material which comprised their sacred scripture had been written originally by different authors in different places at different times two different audiences, and four different reasons. Even though these texts were mostly theological in import, the authors had no idea that their compositions would someday become only one part of a complete set of writings. It would take hundreds of years for these disparate texts to be collected, edited, and arranged into a more or less singular work. I say more or less 
because of the difficulty, the physical difficulty, of putting large amounts of text together in scrolls. That would require another technology. As it was in the process of being formed as a vibrant religious community with varied expressions, early Judaism gathered these pre-canonical materials, these materials before they were anybody's scripture or Bible or canon. These texts select these selected texts spoke to Judaism's identity as a continuation of the elect people of God, emphasized Israel's role in God's eventually blessing all the families of the earth, accented the people's covenant relationship with their deity, and mandated the behavior expected of a holy nation and kingdom of priests. Granted, it would be some time, in fact, many centuries, before the synagogue settled once and for all on its final list, its sacred canon of scripture. Nevertheless, as Judaism evolved over the years, it stressed sacred scriptures sufficiently to make apt the eventual characterization that religious Jews were a people of the book. That book was the synagogue's scripture. In time, this same scripture would be referred to by Christians as the Old Testament. The church's role in the production of Christian scripture is comparable to the synagogue's, even though with the church there was an important twist. The earliest church initially was completely content with the scripture of the synagogue. They believed that these texts made up God's word, that they spoke truly of the God who was manifest in Jesus the Christ, and that they testified throughout to what God had done through Christ. These scriptures were sufficient, thank you. There was no fundamental debate between the Jews who followed Jesus and the Jews who did not about the truthfulness or authority of the synagogue's scriptures. The only debate was over interpreting these scriptures in the light of Jesus' person and work. We should never underestimate the significance of the church's insistent retention of the synagogue scriptures as part of the Christian Bible, even though we have underestimated it. Eventually, the church imitated early Judaism by collecting, editing, and arranging another set of writings, which would become the New Testament. The New Testament reflected the church's rule of faith, not only in ongoing disputes with the synagogue, but also in the determinative internal debates with other ostensibly Christian groups, such as the Gnostics. While this process also took considerable time, it would eventuate finally in the church's claim that their scripture consisted of the Old and New Testaments. The point to be underscored at this juncture is that Scripture is a function of, dependent on, and integrally related to actual communities of faith and their common life under God from the beginning until the present. 
It is a major theological error to abstract Scripture from the community which produced it, was informed by it, and recognized it as canonical. This community continues to affirm the canonical status of Scripture. This is why it makes more sense to speak of the authority first of Judaism and then of the Church relative to their respective scriptures. In a Christian frame of reference, the Bible is the Church's book. All interpretation of the Christian Bible, therefore, is carried out in an ecclesial context. Proper interpretation of sacred scripture will be shaped and informed by the Church's worship and liturgy, its ecumenical creeds, its teaching offices, its catechisms, its sacraments, its long history of engagement with Holy Writ, and the entirety of its mission. In both historical and theological terms, fulsome life lived comprehensively in the Church, the body of Christ, and biblical interpretation go hand in hand. Separation of these two elements is fatal. Something else that is crucial for approaching the Bible as scripture is taking seriously the entirety of the biblical witness. At one level, this is merely a plea to appreciate all the scripture which the Holy Spirit has given as gift to the church. But the matter cannot be left there. Rather, what must be faced squarely is incipient Marcionism in the Church in spite of its formal rejection. Marcion, of course, was the famous shipbuilder who tried mightily to persuade the Church to jettison the Jewish scriptures as incompatible with Christian faith, belief, and practice. The Church said no. The synagogue scripture must be retained as the church's Old Testament. The church was so serious, it gave the very wealthy Marcion his money back. I think that remains unprecedented to this day. (laughs) Officially, Marcion lost. Unofficially, he largely won. Every time a Christian claims to be a New Testament Christian or a local body presents itself as a New Testament church, Marcion surely smiles in his grave. Now, I promise you that I am not engaged in special pleading to protect my own academic turf. (laughs) Far from it. Consider this. Every single New Testament author claimed, in a variety of ways, that the God who was incarnate in Jesus the Christ was the God of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, and every other constituent member of the elect people Israel. In addition, these authors argued in no uncertain terms that what God did in Christ was in full accord with the synagogue's scriptures. Replete throughout the Gospels are references and allusions to biblical texts which are seen as the fulfillment of Jesus' teaching and actions. 
Even the Apostle Paul, who disagreed adamantly with some basic contentions of Jewish belief, never wavered from the conviction that the Jewish scriptures were essential to understanding who Jesus was and what God had accomplished through him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul affirms that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Famously, the apostle asserted in his second letter to Timothy that all scripture, still meaning the synagogue's scripture, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Jesus, too, is depicted in the Gospels as constantly appealing to the Jewish scriptures, which he insisted testified to his person and his work. In the well-known story of the two men on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, Jesus appeared to them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, we are told, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The New Testament is a wondrous gift from God to the church. But that fact should not allow us to lose sight of the reality that neither Jesus nor a single author of any New Testament writing thought that anything would be needed for the church's faith and life but the scripture of the synagogue. That would come later. Taking the New Testament seriously demands taking the Old Testament seriously. It is that simple. We always want to be on the side of the angels in any theological dispute. But in this case, it would not hurt to be on the side of Jesus and the authors of the New Testament as well. Because the scripture we now possess derives from actions taken by the synagogue and the church, two living, breathing religious communities, we have to realize that, they construct, that the text they constructed had a specific purpose. These communities designed scripture not as a religious reference book or as a gathering of isolated moral teachings or as a glorified self-help manual or as a straightforward historical account or as accumulated stories of religious models or geniuses whom we are somehow supposed to emulate. Primarily, the synagogue and the church construed the biblical text as a revelatory text. From a Christian perspective, this means that the purpose of Scripture is to recount the story of God's self-disclosure in Israel and most especially in Jesus the Christ. Put more sharply, the chief intent of Scripture is to put its readers in touch with the God who elected Israel and was made known also in Christ. When scripture is read sacramentally and under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, we in the church do not receive facts about God, but actually confront God. More accurately, we are confronted by God. For this reason, it is quite impossible to engage scripture neutrally, dispassionately, or objectively. 
The main referent of Scripture is God, the Creator and Lord of the universe, the Elector of Israel, the one incarnate of Jesus of Nazareth, and the one who raised Jesus from the dead when he became the risen and exalted Lord. With this realization, it is no more possible to appropriate Scripture without life-altering consequences than it was possible for Moses to keep his shoes on in the presence of the burning bush. This brings us to the issue of the nature of biblical language. For a very long time, Christians have been taught in implicit and explicit ways that because Scripture is true, its language should be viewed as historically and even scientifically accurate. Indeed, many have believed that defending the Bible's complete historicity and scientific precision is absolutely necessary. The upshot of such an approach is a Bible that is supposedly technically correct, but drained of passion, power, and persuasion. On this view, the Bible supplies facts on a host of subjects which the reader is then obligated to make relevant. If the relevancy is not apparent, then the biblical material may be ignored. I am in the process of writing a commentary on 1 and 2 Kings. When I tell people what I am working on, I typically get a quizzical look, polite enough, but still quizzical, and even a little eye-rolling. Why? Because they wonder who in the world would be interested in a book full of excruciatingly detailed, bloodless, inert, and raw facts. That's fine, Frank. You and the five other Old Testament scholars, go have fun, but leave the rest of us alone. (laughs) Please remember, Most of these folk would have no trouble believing that Kings was true, indeed inspired. They would, in addition, typically believe that that Kings outlines events exactly as they happened. Yet, neither the materials inspired, truthful, or camcorder character alters the dreaded sense that it is also colossally boring. Our modern sense of truth as requiring historical and scientific substantiation has permitted us to perform an amazing miracle. We have transformed the animated, vital, pulsating, spirit-induced Word of God into something that is tedious and lackluster. It would be easier to feed this audience with a single loaf of bread and a can of sardines. In actuality, Scripture is a rhetorical masterpiece. I use rhetoric here in its classical sense, the art of persuasion. Scripture is geared to persuading its readers that God's actions in Israel and Christ are crucial for redeeming, reconciling, and restoring the whole created order. Subject matter of this sort requires precisely the language we encounter in the Bible. Technical language is fine when identifying the temperature at which water boils or dissecting a frog, but is woefully inadequate when dealing with magnalia dei, the mighty acts of God. 
This is why biblical language is artful, imaginative, poetic, parabolic, symbolic, highly elusive, suggestive, metaphoric, ironic, purposefully ambiguous sometimes, mysterious, and passionate. This is not the case because the Bible is not true. It is rather because of the very nature of the truth which the Bible expresses. Try it with romance sometime. Go ahead. Tell your significant other, I really love you because you have all the proper organs. (laughs) Technically true, but you're sleeping on the sofa tonight. (laughs) It is rather because of the very nature of the truth which the Bible expresses that we have this language. Biblical language is appropriate to its subject matter. To illustrate this point, let us return for a moment to the biblical stories which I credited my students with knowing at the outset of my remarks. Asked if they were familiar with famous biblical stories, the Exodus from Egypt, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, Samson and Delilah, David and Goliath, Jonah and the Great Fish, my students would eagerly reply in the affirmative. Trouble is that there are no such stories, at least not in the manner in which folk claim to know them. In Scripture, we have Exodus, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, and Jonah. In each of these cases, the whole of the text, with all of its fascinatingly intricate details, rich texture, clever nuances, intriguing back and forward glances, deep tones, and imaginative phraseology, its wordplay, is the story. Almost everything that one thinks these stories are about is changed and changed radically when attending to the text in all its linguistic splendor. Inhabiting the strangely wondrous linguistic world of the Bible makes us realize how sharp a sword the biblical text is. One wonders why we have not learned this at least from Jesus' parables. Finally, reading the Bible as Christian scripture demands that we reconsider figural reading. At times in the church, people have worried that figural reading is too prone to flights of fancy, too uncontrollable, too difficult for applying interpretive checks and balances. These concerns are legitimate, but not decisive. It all depends on what one means by figuration and whether figuration is controlled by the text, the overall biblical witness, and the rule of faith. Properly understood, Every attempt to read the Bible as scripture is figural because of the simple fact that none of this material was addressed to you and me. Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, not Seattle. None of us were in view when the various psalmists composed their wondrous wondrous poems. We were not on the radar screen of the authors and editors of Leviticus, Kings, Jeremiah, or the Gospel of John. 
Yet the canonical process of the two faith communities that gave us, under God's Spirit, the Scriptures, the synagogue and the church respectively, did their work to ensure that every subsequent generation of those faith communities would be able to read the Scriptures as though they were the original addressees. We read the Bible as scripture because we are part of the church which confesses this material as scripture. Figuration makes that possible. Putting the matter boldly, receiving the Bible, an ancient text, as scripture in a subsequent and present setting is already a figural reading. Otherwise, the Bible is locked into the past And we are, in effect, reading someone else's mail. Equally, the various biblical authors are engaged in figuration themselves at a number of levels. When the Apostle Paul says that in Adam all die and in Christ are all made alive, that is figuration. As purely historical figures, the actions of other people can have no supra-historical effect on anyone else. When John the baptizer announces the arrival of God's kingdom, that is a figural reading of a complex of messianic texts. Indeed, a highly literal reading of such texts would suggest that the kingdom of God was as distant as ever just as those in the majority in the synagogue maintained. Every biblical reading that requires the reader's allegiance and commitment is figural. Otherwise, all we have is what someone else once believed, for good or for ill. Every application of a psalm or a parable to a modern local congregation, perforce, is a figural reading. When we assert that we not only interpret the Bible, but are part of the Bible by virtue of our membership in the church, the body of Christ, we are carrying out a figural reading. Figuration in this guise is not peculiar or esoteric. It is standard. Most important, arguably, is the collective claim made by virtually every writer of the New Testament and all of the apostolic preachers, as they are presented in Acts. As we mentioned earlier, that claim was that everything God did in Christ for the redemption, reconciliation, and restoration of the created order, as well as for the establishment of the kingdom of God, was according to the scriptures. This involves more than selected messianic texts, or testimonia related specifically to Jesus. This involves a total appropriation of these sacred scriptures. Only figuration allows this. A non-Christological reading of the Old Testament is not a reading that accords with the Church's deepest confession about her scriptures. Had we more time, we could distinguish between a flat Christian reading, which is not appropriate, and a Christological reading via figuration, which is. For now, I will leave it as a provocative assertion. I offer one example, derivative of my current work on kings. Israel in kings is a figure for the church, 
which is, according to the New Testament, organically related to, always connected to, and ultimately an extension of the elect people of God, Israel, according to the flesh. This means a great many things, all of them to be determined and developed in the teaching and preaching ministries of the church. But one thing is paramount. Division in Israel is a function of the judgment of God, and kings is about division. God elected one people, not two, three, or many peoples. A divided Israel provides the world with less salt, light, and leaven. The same goes for the church. Jesus prayed fervently that his disciples be one, just as he and the Father were one. That was the means by which the world would know that God had sent Christ. A divided church severely weakens that witness. Have we in the church been serious enough about this egregious sin? Would a serious look at a biblical text like 1 and 2 Kings make a difference? I am arguing that it should. I conclude by returning to the wolf in sheep's clothing imagery. My contention is that we have in the modern period layered the Bible with assorted garments that actually prevent the church from reading it as Christian scripture. These garments must be stripped and discarded. That gives us access to a Bible which is authentically scripture. Then, by stressing Scripture's origins in actual communities of faith, taking seriously the whole biblical witness, viewing the text as theologically charged and a revelatory text, attending to all the linguistic wonders of the text, and no longer cowering at figuration, which is already prevalent throughout, we are in for a spirit-led surprise. Going this route, I submit will make us aware of the feast that awaits us. I've returned once again to Dr. Peterson's metaphor. If I am correct, eat this book will no longer sound suspiciously like eat your vegetables. Rather, it will sound like an elegant, inviting, sonorous voice which beckons dinner is served. Thank you. Dr. Spina has graciously agreed to answer some of our questions. Would you give us your name? My name is Dana Wright. Uh, Dr. Spina, you've said a lot about the rhetorical and the figurative dimension of Scripture. How do you understand Scripture to refigure the culture that we live in? Well, I think the very fact that, would, that that's a task recall, re- involves figuration, does it not? Uh, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, 
it's, it's wrong to say, well, we can only apply that if we can find something that looks just like the church at Ephesus. doesn't exist. History doesn't work like that. There's never another thing. So the whole process by which we appropriate the text, by which we receive the text, is going to say, all right, what are the kinds of figurations that we already find in Scripture that will give us hints as to the moves we might make to where we receive this as though we were the addressees. I'm thinking more of how Scripture might demythologize the things of the culture to expose, for example, claims of ultimacy that really aren't oh, ultimate, okay. things like that. Okay, let, let me give you an example simply because I was talking about it uh, in a class yesterday. Story, the story of Exodus. In Exodus, Egypt is not simply Egypt. It's not just simply a nation-state that happens to be there and enslave somebody. Egypt represents the aggregate of human sovereignty as expressed by conventional political power. It goes up against what? Nameless, powerless, disenfranchised, marvelous slaves who just happens to have the only true source of power in the universe on their size. So if you want to talk about how you demythologize the powers and principalities today, there is your paradigm in a a text right like that. There would be other ones as well. I I think the Bible is full of simpler kinds of things. Thank you. That was a good follow-up. Good. Another question. Can you give us sources that help us unpack the difference you alluded to between a flat Christian reading of all of Scripture and the Christological reading? Uh, I think the, the, flat, the flat Christian reading is easier to spot. Uh, this is when you would say something like the author of Psalm 22, which many of you will recognize begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's on the mouth of Jesus in several of the Gospels, not in Luke's, but in several of the Gospels. Um, A flat Christian reading would be to say, well, look here, this writer knew five, six hundred years beforehand what was going to happen, meaning Psalm 22 would be meaningless to everybody else until you saw Jesus on the cross. Uh, That is is ahistorical, it is silliness, the synagogue had no trouble with Psalm 22. A Christological reading says, wow. In the light of Jesus, this gorgeous psalm, this powerful psalm, has even greater meaning now because of what God did in Christ. So one is sort of by subtraction. It doesn't mean anything till you get there. The other one is by addition. It means more when you see what God has done in Christ. That would be one example I would give. of that. In terms of sources... Um, Nothing off the top of my head. We'll exchange emails and maybe I can help you out that way. Okay. When all else fails, appeal to technology. (laughs) Good. Let's take one more question. My name's James. Oh, that's loud. Sorry. Um, So we we know that the New Testament writers and even pre-modern Bible interpreters uh, used figural reading. How do we get it back into the church and move away from the flat Christian or historical? Well, first of all, I, I would say figuration has been here for a very, very long time. 
Uh, one place where it has been, whether people are aware of it or not, or whether they would call it that, uh, would be in the whole tradition of black Christianity, where you've had uh, strong uh, African-American churches. You get great figuration there. Um, even, even the black spiritual, those are figural appropriations of Scripture. You know, go down Moses, tell old Pharaoh. They know who Moses and Pharaoh was in that thing. So it's been there. I think it's also there in the church, in other places. We have no trouble saying, as in Adam all die, as in Christ are all made alive. That is figuration. The issue is to already recognize it and then be more attentive to the full weight of Scripture to see, oh, look what's actually going on here. Uh, when, when Paul makes something of the Hagar story to make a point, that's figuration, you see. And so I think, first of all, is to recognize what's there. And then secondly, there's no substitute for living, breathing, and having your being in that text where the figuration starts to become much more evident. Again, I'm not talking about some kind of alchemy here that only the initiated know. I'm talking that something that is actually suggested by the text. There has to be control on it, otherwise it'll mean anything you want it to mean. Good, and with that, let's express again our appreciation to Dr. Dare I say, food for thought? Perhaps not. Let me just draw your attention to several fairly important uh, bits of logistical information. Just to help you see, we have a fairly complex set of things happening in the next two days. You folks here are a part of the Scripture as Formation Conference. We're delighted you're here. In addition, there's another concurrent conference happening on our campus with the North American Professors of Christian Education. They, for the most part, are in upper campus. We, for the most part, are staying here in the lower campus. And we're coming together for the Eugene Peterson plenaries. You only need to know that because this evening's plenary by Dr. Peterson is not just a con- collection of these two conference entities, but we've also decided to throw the doors open. Come, come what may, we'll see who all comes. I have a feeling we're going to be busy and full this evening. So can I just give you a few words of instruction specifically about the evening, and then we'll back up from there. The event begins at 7 o'clock, and it is in Royal Brome Pavilion, which is our gym just down the street here. The doors open at 6 Those of you who are conference registry registrants and you have a name tag, your seat is reserved. So breathe deeply. You will have a place to sit if you can get there by 645. You also have what we're calling the Disney Fast Pass. With that lovely little uh, tag, name tag that you have on, we invite you, we urge you to enter through the Nickerson Street entrance rather than the main entrances at 3rd Avenue West. Tonight, we don't know how many folks are coming, but we're hoping for a large crowd. And again, we want to be sure you can get in and get in in a a timely way. So just note the door that is on Nickerson Street 
and it will say conference registrants only. You'll come through there with your name tag, your fast pass, and then you will be seated on the floor of the gym, which is reserved for you again until 6.45. So please be seated if you can by that time. So again, there's lots of things going on. I want to also just draw your attention to the plan now for the afternoon. On your name tag, on the back of your name tag is a colored dot. So I invite you to take that now and look and see what color you are. That is for our afternoon session. We decided in planning this conference that we wanted to do more than just talk about how scripture is formative in our lives. We wanted to have an opportunity to practice it together. So that is the afternoon breakout session. All the breakout sessions will be led by our School of Theology faculty. They have all been... We're all in, the, in cahoots on this, so we're going to be walking through the same process together. But I urge you to go to the classroom that connects to the color for your, that's on the back of your name tag for your session this afternoon as we go to the um, time called Eating God's Word, a Formative Encounter with Scripture. After that, which is planning to begin at 3 o'clock, after that time, then... You will at 4.30 be dismissed, and you are on your own for dinner. So I invite you to plan ahead, have a plan for dinner, so that you can get back in a timely way for the evening session. Then tomorrow morning, there are breakout sessions again, and all of that information is in your conference packet. If you have questions, feel free to to grab somebody who has a name tag or one of our volunteers with a volunteer shirt on and ask questions. Again, we're delighted you're here. There's a lot going much for us to receive, digest, and to allow it to be metabolized into our own lives and the lives of our congregation. So go in peace and blessings on you. Many thanks.